Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. I'm excited for our guest today. He's just a really wonderful and cool person. But I also just like, I like people that do things. And one of the things I've been really thinking about lately is like, I'm in a cool place in my life. I'm surrounded by really interesting people. And I'm surrounded by people predominantly who do things. And they do things really well. They do it at a super high level. And when I'm around people like that, it always pushes my envelope and I love my envelope to be pushed. I love to be like, kind of like taken to that next level. You know, I've been thinking about so much in the past few years is like, how do you continue to like build those relationships with people and be in the right kinds of relationships? And I don't want to say like being around people who aren't like kind of operating at that next level. Like if you're not with people like that, you're not going to grow. You know, everyone's different. I know myself. I always have to feel a little bit uncomfortable for me to like kind of go to that next space. And the best way to do that is just surround yourself with really, really high performers. A high performer for me isn't someone who makes a ton of money or has some big position. You could be a high performer. Like I'm the father of a young child. So I want to be around people that I think are the best parents. So I can like go up to that next level. Or if I'm trying to do something athletic, I'm trying to be around the people who are the best athletes or around business, the people who are the best business people, whatever it is that I'm trying to do, I try and surround myself with like a group of people who are great in different ways so that there's a little bit to kind of be influenced by and to take away from some, from these people. And, you know, when I spend time with people like that, I always feel like I'm stretched just a little bit. I've been in a really good groove with that lately. Um, great relationships with smart people who challenge my thinking and who push me. And so I'm just feeling really appreciative with that. So like I said, our guest today is someone who absolutely is one of those people who's a high performer and always looking to kind of like change, change it up and grow. So today we're talking to Nancy Burrell. Nancy has been a high school English teacher in Massachusetts for over 27 years, as well as an adjunct professor in undergraduate and graduate schools in the Boston area. Her writing has been featured in the Huffington Post, The Guardian, Aussie, Education Week, The College Board, and Hey Teach. Nancy is the author of the book, I'm Not Holding Your Coat, My Bruises and All, Memoir of Punk Rock Rebellion, which was published by Brazilian Points in 2021. Uh, she's just an incredible person who's done so much for the people in her community and is just like an interesting person who's been part of this subculture that I'm involved in, which is punk and hardcore. I'm really excited for this conversation, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So before we start, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. All right, let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. <laughs> everyone uh, welcome back so like i said in the intro today i'm really excited about our guest nancy who's not only uh, an author uh, has this huge history in like you know the philadelphia and the east coast punk rock scene but also is a really incredible impactful teacher and we're going to have her speak to us all about what it's been like you know uh, in her role as a teacher what she's learned but through the eyes of a punk so with that nancy welcome to the show thanks for having me Absolutely. Okay. So I did cover it in the intro, but as a starter for people who are listening, tell us a little bit about yourself professionally and also like a little bit, just a taste of your coming up through the punk scene. But let's start with, with you as a professional, where are you at today and, and a little bit about your career. So I always wanted to be a teacher. My father wanted me to be a lawyer. So he said, you know, teachers were glorified babysitters and they <laughs> would not make uh, you know, was not, I would not realize my economic potential. Mm -hmm. And so I went to school to be a paralegal and toiled in that field for about 11 years, hating every minute of it. And after I moved up to Boston, uh, my husband, Al, said he was going to go back and get his mechanical engineering degree. So I was like, well, you're going back to school. So will I. And I got my teaching degree. And I, I didn't become a teacher until I was 36 years old. And I just started teaching in the community where I live, which is Revere, which is a uh, about five miles north of Boston. Mm -hmm. 
And um, I loved it. I, I just seem to have found my calling in being a teacher. And so I've been there now for 27 years. Um, I teach English and I also am an adjunct professor at a Boston area college where I teach people that want to be teachers, both undergraduate and graduate school. Okay. Awesome. And that's an incredible story. And tell it like just out of interest, was your father still around when you ended up going back to school and, and getting your oh, teaching? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he did. And, you know, as I started, you know, I, I won a couple of awards and stuff, you know, and he was, you know, kind of forgot about all the other stuff. He would, he would laminate everything when I was in the paper and we used to call him the laminator. And, you know, he would mall walk, you know, uh, when he was in his nineties, he was, he would be doing two a days at the mall and anyone who stopped to talk to him, you know, he would talk about being a Marine, but he would also then be, want to see my daughter, you know, and he'd rip out this laminated article from a newspaper. So he was really proud. And that made me really happy since he was wasn't behind it in the beginning that is like ultimately heart touching and also like mall walking for anyone who's like you know of you're of a certain generation you're going to know what we're talking about it's like you know like see more senior level people or senior people will go to the mall and like we'll just walk around the mall and it's like a way of exercising socializing and all that um i love 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 to hear that that's such a like really heartwarming uh part of the story now tell us just give us a little snippet when you said like, Hey, I moved to Boston and my husband, Al, then what about growing up in Philly and just a little bit about that transition from there to, to Boston and some of your background in punk. So I was working um, at a law firm in Philadelphia and I lived, I moved out of my house when I was 19 because my father was, he was a Marine. He was very strict. I went to Catholic school. So after I got this two-year associate's degree, I immediately moved into the city um, as quickly as I could, which was cost affordable back then. You know, 19-year-olds can't quite do that yeah. these days. And I um, just fell in love with the entire Philadelphia punk rock scene. I was into bands like Iggy Pop and the Ramones and Blondie and Patti Smith. And then as I got um you know, as I was living into city, then I started getting more into um, any punk band that came through and played in town. I started managing a punk rock band, and then I started promoting shows uh, with the band that I was managing. And it was just so much fun. It was the time in my life when I was most present. You know, where I was there. I remember saying to myself on more than one occasion, "This is really special. This is really fun." And you know, this is really cool. And um, it was exciting and it was dangerous and it was risky, but it was really fun. And so I met Al because I bought the SSD control. The kids will have their say record. And I was like, I have got to get this guy to do, you know, to get his band here in Philly. And I called him on the phone, which was really expensive back then. <laughs> and um, He couldn't do the show that I wanted him to do, but we ended up talking for a long time on the phone. And I was like, well, I really like him. And he invited me to see the band play with the Dead Kennedys in Staten Island. Didn't know how I was going to get there, you know, but I was, I'm going to be there. And, and we met in Staten Island and it wasn't long after that. That was in July. In September, he came to visit me. In October, I visited him. And in December, I moved there. Mm-hmm. And my family was horrified. <laughs> you know, my mother was like, you're moving to Boston and you don't even have an engagement ring. <laughs> so, um, but I needed a change and I wanted to shake things up. And I thought it was a, a good plan. And as it turned out, it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. So why did you uh, not like your previous career? What was it about it that you didn't like? When you're a paralegal, you are doing all the things, or, you know, I worked as a word processor, you're doing the things that attorneys don't want to do. And um, I mostly worked as a word processor in the law firm in Philly. And then after I moved up here, and, and it's tedious, you know, you're just typing up documents all day and making revisions and, it's kind of boring, you know, I'd always read them and, you know, and, and I think it helped me become a better writer because I sort of absorbed some of the writing techniques in, in the legal stuff that I, but it was just, it was just boring and you're not a player, you know, you're not a, um, 
you're actually called support staff. You know, it's not, it's not, um, you're not, you're not making any change or helping anybody. You're just churning out tedious documents. And so it just wasn't fun for me. Yeah. Well, and if I look at your story, it's like, I'll use your word, like you've always kind of been a player. You always had a seat at the table. Like when you're growing up in the punk scene, like you weren't just going to shows, which is fine. Like it's totally fine to be a part of the community, but you were managing bands, you were promoting bands. You were like real active member of the scene. And then in your, in the next part of your career, like after you were a paralegal, you were a teacher. So again, real active and you did, a, you made a major impact in the community you're in. So it sounds like being having a seat at the table and like driving the action is important to you for how you want to conduct your life. Right. And that's the way I've always been. Even when I was a girl scout, even when I was in, you know, grade school, I wanted to be a contributor in anything that I did. I wanted to contribute in any way that I could. And so with punk rock, I couldn't sing, you know, I couldn't play an instrument. Not that I didn't try, but I couldn't do any of that. So then I was like, I will have to be part of the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And that's the role that I turned, it turned out I was, you know, pretty good at. Right on. Well, I mean, playing an instrument, the ability to play an instrument is always kind of questionable with punk rock, except for a few bands, but I get your point. All right. So let's talk about uh, being a teacher, like in something I like this podcast is about the leadership, really. Like we talk a lot about business and, and all those kinds of things, but at the end of the day, people come from all different walks of life to hear about leadership from different people. And I view you as a leader and that's really why I wanted you to have on the podcast. So if you think about leadership, what does that mean for you in your life, in your career, your personal life, in the world you're in? Uh, like, how are you a leader and, and what does that look like? For me as a teacher, it's essential that I'm not just a leader in the classroom, but that I model leadership and for my students and encourage them to become leaders and teach them to understand what that means. So my main thing I think that I do really well is I can, I inspire and I can motivate my students. The kids have told me that they say, you're a good motivator, Beryl, you know, <laughs> so I believe that. <laughs> and I, I do that through a lot of different things. Like I help kids see how to make connections to their learning because that's what it's all about and i have to you know work to allow what we call the productive struggle so that a student's intellect intellective capacity grows so that's not you know it's not just um me help jumping in to help them all the time it's like let them struggle a little bit until they figure it out you know to help them become sort of independent in their learning and i try to encourage them to take risks and uh, not be not be uh knocked down by failure and to get rid of what we call deficit thinking i work in a community where 80% of my students live at or below the poverty level and I don't want them to ever think that they have deficiencies in their learning because of a particular reason. And I will tell them my stories about punk rock. My kids love the fact that I wrote a book and I keep it on my desk and they come up and they browse through it. <laughs> and um, yeah, I tell them about putting shows on as a teenager and the challenges and stuff. And, and I think it sort of encourages them to maybe go outside their comfort zone and try some new things and building relationships. I think as a leader to me is the most important thing you can do. If you don't have um, relationships with the people that work for you or, you know, the kids that I teach, the whole thing falls apart. And that, you know, that's really to me, the cornerstone is building these really strong relationships with my students. Yeah. And like to, to make a connection here. So like, we look at when you brought SSD down or when you contacted SSD and like you call them on a phone number from a record, which is like, you know, back there, back then it was common practice. Today's version would be like emailing someone or whatever, but it's the idea that you're getting hold of someone you don't know. Maybe it's a friend of a friend at best. And you're making a promise that I'm going to put you on a show all of these miles away. And there's this like leap of faith that two people make with each other. Like I'm going to put on the show for you. And I also expect you to show up and not be total dicks. And that idea of like that punks learn about relationship building and like showing like trust and vulnerability and like kind of forging these relationships based on like, Hey, I'm a punk. You're a punk. 
we're going to do this together. And everyone just kind of like does their part. What role does that play around relationship building for you as a professional? Because like, it's one thing to say like, hey, it's good to have relationships, but it's a whole other thing to actually know how to do it. So what do you do to build relationships? So with my students, the first thing is trust. I don't look anything like my students and I'm decades older than my students. So it's, you know, it's harder every year. Why are they going to trust this old white woman in, in their room? And so I usually do it through storytelling. I'm a really good storyteller, I think. And so I tell my students on the first day of school stories, and I have like a whole PowerPoint presentation on this, of past students who've come my way and who have gone on you know, who maybe have struggled in the beginning, but they've gone on to enormous success. Or, you know, or I tell them stories about, um, for example, we, I had a, um, he was, he was in seventh grade. I teach high school, but one of our students was um, mauled by Rottweilers. And I didn't know the student, but I knew his sister. And I kept seeing pictures of him on my Facebook feed in a Slipknot t-shirt. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be really cool if Slipknot would do something for for this kid who's such a huge fan and who is like didn't even have a pulse when they put him in the ambulance. And it's that interconnectivity that, you know, I learned through punk rock. I, you know, I put it up on my Facebook. Who knows Slipknot? And I didn't know Slipknot. And somebody knew Kevin Lyman, who did the Warp Tour, who hooked me up with him. And then he hooked me up with Slipknot, you know, and then the next thing I know, you know, two years later, when this kid's a freshman, I'm taking him to see Slipknot, <laughs> parental permission granted, <laughs> and showing my students the power of verbal communication and oral communication and why they should be good at it. Because you can get things, you can speak to people, and um, it can take you someplace that you never dreamed you might go. And I, so I tell my students all these stories, you know, when I first meet them. And it completely inspires them <laughs> and yeah. um, it, it, it enables them to trust me. And so once I build that trust piece, then I try to, you know, make sure my students understand that learning can be fun, that um, there's a reason for it, that there's relevancy to what we're learning. And um, we just have a really good time after that. And um, I get a lot of great feedback from former students. That's one one good thing about social media is after my students graduate, um, they can friend me on Facebook or Instagram and we keep in touch and they give me feedback about um, my teaching and things they learned at my school, what would be better, what maybe we shouldn't do anymore, things like that. This seems like maybe like a trite question or obvious question, but like why do you, why do you care so much? Like I, you know, and for the audience listening, like Nancy and I have had a previous conversation where we got like pretty deep into, you know, like you've won awards for very specific reasons. You've done some work that's like above and beyond. Uh, you've worked with like really at risk populations and you choose to do this. So why do you care so much? Like why, why are you actively putting yourself in the position to be able to work with these populations? I mean, I would go back to my parents. Both my parents were givers in the community. Um, my father was always um, doing some kind of community service. When, my, you know, my mother, when we needed a Girl Scout leader, she stepped up. When we needed a cheerleading coach, she stepped up. They were always helping people. Um, so I think I, you know, I got it from them. It's just something that is inherent inside me. I think that and, and my kids, there's, you know, a lot of my kids, I can see their potential. And when you see their potential and you realize that the obstacles standing in their way to success, you can help them tear those walls down. How can you not help them? That's, you know, that's part of it too. Um, I think it's just, you know, who I am as a person, but also um, sometimes it's not too much to just push a kid in, in the right direction. And I'm not the only teacher who does this at my school. Um, I would say 95% of the teachers do the, the same work. It just so happens that, you know, I, I got, you know, lauded for it. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a lot of teachers across this country are doing this kind of work um, every single day. You, you kind of have to, if you teach in a community like mine, 
Um, you kind of have to go above and beyond the call of duty. I think, you know, that's just the nature of the career. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that though, because some people are built like that and some people aren't built like that. And some people just fill a role while other people go above and beyond. Something like really specific about you that I've noticed, and I think is an interesting part of your story is like the amount of hustle you put in. Like, so that Slipknot story, like, come on, you know, I'm not saying other teachers don't do that, but that is a level of like hustle. That's a level of like DIY ingenuity. Like I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm sure a lot of teachers do that, but not every teacher. So tell us a little bit about that role of that hustle and that, like that space, because you definitely bring that to your, to your role. So it's funny you say that because one of my, uh, my students created a hashtag. It was like team Burrell support the hustle. Yeah. <laughs> and they, used, they, used to tell, they tell me that all the time. They're like, you know, bro, you're a hustler, you know? And I say, well, if you want to make things happen, that's what you have to do. Um, that I truly believe comes from the do-it-yourself work ethic of punk rock. When we were doing shows and calling bands to do shows, like who would have ever thought that like that would work out the way that it did? And it, you know, those successes grew and built on each other. And so when I got to be a teacher, you know, it was kind of the same thing. And I've told this story before where we read a book um, called A Long Way Gone. It's about a boy soldier in Sierra Leone. And the Sierra Leone refugee all-stars were playing Boston, like Boston Garden or something. And one of my colleagues came to me and she said, they're going to be in town. We need to get them to play at Riviera High School. And I was like, Erin, you're crazy. They were on Oprah. They're not going to come and play our little high school. And she called me right out and she was like, some punk rocker you are. Oh. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought this was like your thing. And I was like, oh, no. You know, now, whoa, hold everything. Okay. Okay. Let's try to do this, you know? And so we got on their um, website and started emailing their management and explaining what we wanted to do. And they came to our school. And I have to say, it was one of the greatest days of my career, seeing this, you know, incredible band of refugees, which a lot of my students are refugees from Sierra Leone, playing, you know, these instruments and all my kids in the school gym dancing. Yeah. It was just so wonderful. And so that kind of thing, you know, it's a punk rock thing. And it's, it's, you know, and it's being goaded on by colleagues to step up and, you know, do things if, if you want. So, yeah, well, and especially like teachers are just so, um, and so I live in, I live in Canada and it's a challenge here, but nowhere as far as I can see is in the States in terms of like under service, like teachers don't have budgets, they don't have classroom budgets. Like they just don't have enough money, enough resources to do their jobs. So it sounds like any good teacher has got to be a hustler on some level to like get money, make things happen. But also like, that's terrible. It's like the most backward system. Why are we in this space where teachers have to like get donations to get money for their classrooms? What's happening? It, it, it makes me so sad that if I want, you know, extra things for my classroom, I have to write grants or I have to, you know, crowdfund. And um, it is sad. And I don't, you know, I think there's a lot of different reasons for it. But one of the main ones is that people who are in power don't listen to teachers. Um, you know, you you hire you know you hire somebody like Betsy DeVos who has no has never even set foot in a public school before, and she's going to tell us what to do. And and so I think there's been a lot of uh, mismanagement at the highest levels, and people don't listen to teachers about what will help. You know, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, they threw tons, millions of dollars at schools where, you know, to do things where I could have said, that's not going to work. This is what you need to do. But no one asked, right? No one asked teachers what to do. They, you know, everybody thinks because they went to school, they know what schools need. And teachers know what schools need. Yeah. And you got to like, you got to trust the experts and the experts of the teachers. It's, it's like a, a wild, it seems like such a, like a backward ass system that like, so I've got this friend, Anna, who lives in Portland, who's a very dedicated teacher. And, you know, every year she's out like hustling to, to raise funds for her classroom. And it just, 
it blows my mind that we're in this space. So with that, it kind of like dovetails into the idea is like, why do teachers need to teach with a survival mindset? I just think that's the only way that you uh, that you can actually uh, survive. Um, you know, you are constantly making decisions. You're constantly, you know, trying to survive and and make things happen for your students. And if you're not, if you're not a superb communicator, if you're not a person who can make quick decisions and have a lot of mental toughness, you won't survive in this field. And, and people don't, you know, uh, there's, there's so many people that leave the profession within the first five years. So you've got to have that mental stability under pressure. You know, you have to be able to handle situations with strength and intelligence and make good tactical decisions all day long. Um, That's the teacher's job every minute of every day. And my students also have a survival mindset because of their backgrounds, um, but they do need sometimes to be reminded because of their age and their, you know, the frontal lobe development to make good tactical decisions. So that to me is just the nature of the job and, you know, doing a job like ours without support. um, And, and we don't have support at many different levels. You just have to be tough. You really do. You have to be, you have to have that survival mindset. Yeah. Let's unpack that though a little bit, because like, is that something people are born with or can they develop it? Like, do you have any advice around that? I would say, you know, just based on my experience that you can develop it. I remember I had, I'm a mentor teacher because I'm national board certified. And that means I mentor new teachers. And I can remember I had a teacher that I was going to mentor who was very, you know, kind of shy. And um, I looked at her class roster and saw some of the kids on it. And I was like, she's not going to make it with these kids. You know, this is going to be such a challenge for her. And I worked with her a lot and, and she just never gave up on kids. And so um, her first year was a nightmare, but she stayed with it. She's still a teacher to this day. And that's been 20 years now. So I do think you can develop it if you have you know, a good mentor, a good role model, some support from your administrators and um, the willingness to want to do it. And she did. And, and so she made it. So I think it is kind of something you're born with and something you learn. Yeah. And I, I love what you said there, because like, so the way I look at it, like an ability, I view an ability, something you're born with and a skill is something you learn. And, you know, if we think about the Olympics, right? Like, not everyone who's in the Olympics is the same level of natural athletes. Some people just have a natural ability, like kind of like a Wayne Gretzky kind of person or Michael Jordan kind of person, but they still have to bust their asses and hone that ability. And there are other people who are skilled, like they've learned a skill and they work, but there are athletes who are very successful who are, they have less natural ability, but they just grind harder than the, than the people with natural ability. And I am a firm believer that people can learn mental toughness. They can learn resilience. They can learn like all of these things, but very often you need to have a mentor or a coach and like commit to the process of really grinding it out till you get it. And that takes a long time, but if you're committed, you're going to get there. I think there's almost, there's very few things that I think people can't really like learn and actually master as long as you have the willingness and also a good guide to help you get there. Right. And I tell my students stories of that kind of resilience all the time. I, you know, I tell them the story of Kobe Bryant and Kobe Bryant broke his finger and um, his shot was off because of it. And over the summer, he vowed that he would make 10,000 shots, not just throw them up there, but make 10,000 shots. And at the end of the summer, he got a shot back and his team went on to win the um, championship. I tell them stories about, you know, the hated Tom Brady and where he was in his career before he started with the Patriots and how many times, um, you know, he got knocked down, but still kept getting up. And the only danger in that, in that whole, the growth mindset is that there are some things that you know, I've had students who are, you know, live in dire poverty, or they're, they have a parent who is a drug addict, or who has, um, 
a mental illness and um, or they're undocumented. And those kind of things are really hard to overcome. And you, I don't like when people are, well, they need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Yeah. And you know what? Don't say that <laughs> because um, some kids have unbelievable challenges that they have to face. And some kids, you know, they, you know, they do work hard to overcome them, but we have to always keep that in mind and help kids get the services that they need. With that, you know, you'd said like really early on in our conversation, it's like, oh, you know, you got to figure out with kids, like when do you need to like push them? When do you need to let them fail a little bit? You're also talking about like, you're not dealing with one kid. So, you know, me as as a, as a coach, I'm always like one-to-one with people, right? And sometimes I work with teams, but it's usually like one-to-one work. So I'm just engaging with one person. Whereas a teacher, it's like, you got like 20, 30 kids. You got to get all of this rhythm of like when to push, when not to push, when to let people fail, all these different personalities, all these different backgrounds. And you have to actually teach them something. And you have to be doing all of these tactical moves. How do teachers do this? It's really hard. (laughs) Uh, you know, you're saying it. I'm like, oh God, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> last week, last week, I, you know, my kids came back from a three day weekend and, mm-hmm. and, you know, these kids have been through hell with the pandemic. Like right. they just have been through so much in my community, especially many of the kids and you know, their parents lost jobs and they had to step up and become the breadwinners for their family. People lost family members to COVID and the kids came back into school and they just, they were, they did not want to do the work that I gave them. You know? Yeah. So I had a couple of things. Should I pivot? Should I, you know, um, I was getting so frustrated that I, I started to feel like tears well up in my eyes. Yes. <laughs> like you, you can't cry because you're not doing, they're not doing your assignment, you know? And I joked with, I use a lot of humor in the classroom and I was like, then it, it's been very, very successful using humor. And I said to the kids, like, you're going to make me cry if you, if you, you know, you don't do this. Like, let's just stop for a second and just chill for a little bit and and talk and then we can get back to work so you know you you've got to like read the room the same way any leader does mm-hmm. when you're trying to roll something out you know you got to read the room look at your audience see where they're at and if you have to pull back a little bit and uh give a little social emotional time you you know you have to so the next assignment I made sure, like I had something else planned. Um, this is a film class that I teach. And um, I had like kind of a heavy movie planned next. And I went to a light movie yeah. instead. Um, and one that had a lot of different options for the students. Um, uh, we watched Dirty Dancing. Um, <laughs> and so, As one does. <laughs> yes, as one does, right? It's the perfect movie for you know to answer the question what makes a good movie what makes a bad movie um is popularity a good judge of entertainment and um i put an option on there for my students that they could do a dance uh if they wanted to um because i wanted them to see the work that went into baby and johnny's dance, you know, before they did it, just to have that kind of experience. And so, you know, you're supposed to connect everything to the standards. Well, this is a social and emotional thing. And I was surprised how many teenagers wanted to do the dance option. Um, And, and just watching the kids practicing and laying out their choreography and laughing and sweating and having so much fun. I knew I did the right thing with the pivot. And so as a teacher, you got to pivot all day long, just like other leaders have to do in their jobs. You have to read the room. Yeah, but not like other leaders have to do, because a lot of leaders, when they're talking to me about their budgets, they're talking about like millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. It's like our budget's not enough. It's like, I think your budget's like $40 million or some crazy thing. Unlike a teacher who's got to do all these things. So it's you have to do so much and there's so much riding because it's literally people's lives and people who come from 
really challenging backgrounds for, for a lot of those people. And it's not that I'm trying to pump your tires uh, at all. Of course, I know, I know that you know the good work you do and the good work that, that many, many, many teachers do. It's just like astounding when we talk about it because it's just so wild of like how undervalued how society will speak very highly of teachers, but then like in practicalities, like how undervalued and how underfunded and undersupported teachers truly are. But let's go with the creative side and that pivoting side. Um, tell us about the uh, Walking Dead curriculum. So the Walking Dead curriculum just came out of such a crazy set of events. I had a student who was uh, a sophomore completely obsessed with the show so much so that he used to wear the Daryl Dixon leather vest with the wings to school every day. And he would say, you know, Burrell, do you watch this show? And I would say, Jordan, I am not into blood and guts and gore. I'm not watching The Walking Dead. It's not my thing. And Jordan, you know, was a, you know, a challenging student. Okay. And I could usually motivate him to do work in school. Um, but if he didn't finish something or he needed to do something at home, he wouldn't do it. So his grades started to tank around Thanksgiving. And I said, yeah, put him aside, one-on-one -on -one conversation. What do I need to do to get you to do your work? And he said, if you watch The Walking Dead, then I will do my work. You know, and some people would say, don't bargain with your students. But I thought it was kind of cool that we had the kind the relationship that he issue a challenge so I said all right I'll take you up on so Thanksgiving break I tuned in that first episode it took me about five tries to get through it with the, you know this little girl and shot in the head and you know a little zombie girl mm -hmm. <laughs> this is crazy and he used to tell me Jordan used to say it has all that stuff you like in it for real it has great character development and plot and symbolism and allegory and paradox and as I started to watch it I realized he was right and by the end of winter break, I had watched all five seasons that were available. And he was right. And every Monday morning, we would come in and every single kid in the class watched. And we would have these high level conversations that I had wished my kids were having about literature. But I saw something there. I was, I said, this is a powerful platform for student learning. It, I can do a lot with this. And Jordan said, we should have a class on this. And I said, you're right, we should. So we went to my director who happened to be a fan of the show. And she said, if I was willing to make the curriculum over the summer, we could run the course. And so Jordan served as a consultant. My 15 year old nephew served as a consultant. One of my girlfriends served as a consultant. And I built this really fun curriculum because I realized that using this at, you know, it was like a business model, right? To engage in students. If kids are your business, well, then you need to know your business. And if every kid in your class is watching a show like The Walking Dead, then we should probably figure out why and maybe tap into some of that. I knew I could engage reluctant learners because they were being engaged in the conversations we were having in class. I knew kids had strong opinions that they wanted to discuss. And I knew that I could also use the course to dramatize events and concepts and help kids make connections so that they were no longer passive participants in their learning. They were now active participants in their learning. And they could now use, I could use the show to, so they could help comprehend theoretical issues. Um, and as I started, you know, building it, I, I saw that I could reach kids with this and help them connect to their learning. Um, much the same way some of my teachers did when I was in high school. And for example, we learned about uh, the Vietnam War through protest music. And, you know, I, I say the fact that I can still remember that 45 years later tells you how powerful it is. And so this curriculum um, enabled kids, they had to conduct research, they had to check and evaluate sources and consider, you know, multiple and competing views. And that those are all really important 21st century skills um, for kids to be college ready and life ready. Mm -hmm. And we explore things that kids don't often explore in schools, you know, things like psychology and sociology and business and ethics and international relations and public health and gender issues. And the um, the class just took off. Um, I was worried, you know, who's going to take this class? But 81 kids signed up 
for the first round and it's been running, you know, at least one section every single, it's a semester course, um, every single year. And it's been really fun. And, oh, I have to tell you, um, last year, talk about hustle. We got one of the main stars from the show to Zoom with us. Get out of here. Um, yes. The character of Shane, um, John Bernthal, was on the Little League. His kids were on a Little League te team of someone that worked at my school. And I was like, you've got to get him to Zoom with us. You've got to get him to Zoom with us. And it took about six months. But it happened. And when I tell you my street cred is straight through, <laughs> straight through to retirement, like I still have kids coming up in the hallway and they're like, you're that teacher who got, you know, the Punisher um, to to talk to your class. And he was he was amazing. You know, you, he was out all night uh, with the Baltimore police doing something for a show that's going to be kind of like The Wire. Um, you could tell he was tired, but he spent an hour full class with my students answering their questions as if it was the first time he ever heard them. And it was so incredibly powerful. We had had walkers on before. Um, I, I was able to get in touch with some walkers through websites and friends. And, you know, they gave great insight to what was going on. But to have this A-level star and then, you know, tweeting it out and putting it all over Instagram and stuff and kids sharing it, you know, like I have three years till retirement. I'm good. My street cred is solid right through to the end. I love it. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, a few more questions as we're heading heading towards the end here. So, so much of what I'm hearing here, and and that I know is true to you from our from our previous conversation, is really like you meet students where they live, and tell tell us why that matters so much in the process and in that leadership space. Because if you don't, there's no relevancy for them. Mm -hmm. um, it's very hard to convince especially my students who have so much going on in their lives outside of school, why it's important to do some of the things that I want, you know, write a synthesis essay. That, how do they, you know, why would they want to write a synthesis essay? So coming up with, with using The Walking Dead or I teach a film class and I teach a mysteries class and you're finding novels and books where the students can see themselves that all becomes super important. And if you don't do that and you just teach at kids, you're never going to reach them. And that's something I learned almost immediately. You have to, and then, you know, the other thing, and it's I'm sure it's part of everyone's leadership model, when something fails, you have to acknowledge that it failed and either fix it or move on. And so not everything that I've tried has worked. Um, and so, but you have to say, you have to be willing to scrap something when it doesn't. And it's, it's what I said before, if kids are your business, you have to know your business. And so um, we have a class on the evolution of hip hop at my school. We have a Black Lit Matters class. Um, we have courses that we've asked students, you know, what do, what do you want? What, you know, what do you want? They want a philosophy. Our kids want a philosophy. We have philosophy course now at my school. So we have a women in history class at my school. So listening to kids is so important in doing my job, you know, much the way people should listen to their employees. Um, if you listen, you'll learn. 100%. And I think knowing your audience really, and not just like knowing them, but like understanding your audience, one of the most important things you can do in a leadership role, like really spending time to understand, ask questions, listen, learn, be in that space. It's the difference between like, just basically like managing a situation versus leading a situation. And leading is about, I think, engaging thinking, you know, forming minds, having your own mind engage, your own mind form. It's really about like, it's not just about how you do things, it's about how you think. Uh, and I really love, love, love your approach. So again, you know, we're getting close to closing off. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk your, about your book. So tell us about your book. So my book was something I, you know, I wanted to write a book since I was eight years old and um, was trying to think, 
what my book should be. Should it be a novel? But this time in punk rock, so much informed who I became as a human being, an adult, and as a teacher, and as a wife, and as a friend. And it's just, it was a small time of my life, but it was so impactful that I said, I have to write about this. And there were a lot of good stories, you know, that um, came out of that time, uh, crazy stories, dangerous stories, risky stories, but fun stories. And I met a lot of people that I'm still friends with. So I decided my first book was How Punk Rock Made Me a Better Teacher. And it told the punk rock story. And then it, it took what I learned in punk rock and apply, and I told stories about certain students and how I applied what I learned in punk rock to be successful with my students. And I got a high powered agent right away. And, you know, he blew my head up saying, we're going to send this out to bid. And I was like, oh, great, I'm retiring. And what happened was public publishers either liked the teacher story or the punk story. They didn't like it together. And so I pulled off. That was a finite time of my life. So I just pulled that off, polished it up. And, um, you know, the rest is history. It just is really surprising to me, but makes me so happy because what I really, my goal with the book was to have people relate to it, you know, relate their own experiences to it. And, and, um, to also understand like you can make it happen if you want, make it happen. And so that I get emails all the time from people. I just got one today and, and it just makes me fills my heart with warmth, you know, that, that people got my book and, and, you know, they get my book at the same time. So it's been a really fun ride, especially during a pandemic. Absolutely. For sure. I love that. All right. So I got three final questions for you. The first, I'm not going to hold you to this. You can change your answer mid answer. If you want, you know, you could change your answer tomorrow, the next day. This is just in this moment. Top three East Coast punk or hardcore bands. Only East Coast. Oh, that's pretty easy. Top three East Coast hardcore band. Bad Brains, Minor Threat, SSD Control. That's a really good list. Like, very well done. I, I, and I think, you know, that doesn't need to change. Okay, second question for you. If you're thinking about leadership and you're thinking about people from all sorts of different industries, different backgrounds, different age groups, whatever it is, if you're going to say any advice that you have for people who are stepping into a leadership role and are really looking to make a difference? What I would say is listen to the people that are working in the job. Um, I have a former student right now who just stepped into a really high level position at his organization. And I, I said, the first thing you got to do is talk to your employees and listen to what they're saying to you. And if you don't do that, um, it's the same with teachers. No one listens. No one listens to teachers, right? So if pe if you listen to your employees, you'll learn a lot. Find out what they're unhappy about. Find out what motivates them. Find out how they feel about the organization. Find out how um, where they've been successful in the institution. You know, find out where there's been the challenges. Listen, listen. That is my advice. Okay. And then finally, as we're closing off, anything you want to add in, anything that you want to share with people, anything that you want to, you know, pitch to us, anything at all that you want to put out there to the audience? You know, I just wish that people weren't so critical of our profession. And I think that there's a lot of psychological things that go along with teachers' criticism from people that harbor resentment from teachers. But um Teachers were treated very badly during the pandemic. Um, even in my own school, teachers were not trusted to work from their homes. They had to go into empty schools and teach from their classrooms where, you know, there wasn't even the connectivity that you needed. And it was very, very, you know, it was isolating and really difficult. Um, we were probably the only profession that was not trusted to work from their home. Um, so I just wish that, and, and then, you know, when it came time to go back to school or, or think about going back and teachers were demanding safety issues for themselves, for their students, um, again, a barrage of hate for teachers. And so I would just ask people to try to have a little empathy and put yourself into the 
shoes of a teacher and what we're trying to do. Uh, one of my colleagues said to me, she went for, I don't know, acupuncture or something. And the person said, what did you, what do you do for a living? And she said, I'm a teacher. And the woman said, oh, so you didn't work at all last year, right? <laughs> and, you know, things like that are demoralizing, you know, yeah. hearing, seeing social, being ripped up on social media when last year was probably the most challenging and difficult year of my career. And we were jumping through every hoop and trying to learn 50 million platforms to meet our kids and to help them and to build the relationships. And we did it and we did it really well in a lot of cases and as best as we could. And to hear somebody say something like that, it's, it's hurtful. So I would say um, I would love to see some people think twice before they throw a rock at a teacher. All right. Uh, super important. Thank you so much. So everyone, please check out Nancy's book. I'm not holding your coat, my bruises and all. It's a memoir of a punk of memoir of punk rock rebellion. And with that, Nancy, thank you so much for being on the show and everyone else. We'll see you in the outro. Spencer, drop the beat. Nancy, I just feel like I could speak with her for hours because like we really didn't get too much into her background in the Philadelphia punk scene, which she like really helped build some very, very cool stuff there. What's more interesting to me, of course, is like all the work she's done as a teacher. Of course, that that conversation about like punk is something I always like to get into. So maybe we'll have her on the next time. Someone who's in one of those positions where it's like all impact, but very little reward or recognition. Like you know, teachers criminally underpaid, criminally unrecognized as, as the true game changers. It's like, we celebrate teachers until it comes to like giving them money and supporting them. I just want to say like, not just to Nancy, but to all of the teachers out there, thank you so much. I know you deserve so much more, but I just want to say like our gratitude and all of the impact that you've had in changing the lives of so many people, it matters, it's seen, and uh, we really appreciate you. For everyone listening, you know what? Like leadership is an interesting thing because like when we think of leadership, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm a leader in a position in a company and I do all this stuff. No way, man. Leadership is like community leadership, helping someone out, being kind, teaching, mentoring, coaching. That to me is like true leadership and the rest of that just comes from that. So Nancy, you're a true leader. Thank you so much for everything you've done and thank you for spending time with us. As we're closing off, I want to remind everyone that we're produced and edited by Spencer Priest, recorded by Patrick McKechnie, and our design is done by Tammy Levy. With that, I'll see you next time. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond.